Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're in a series called Encounter, and we've been looking at various encounters that people have had um, with, with God in the Scripture. So we looked at Thomas, we looked at the healing of the paralytic, we looked at the healing of the leper, and then last week we looked at the journey of Peter, and we talked about life as a li- the Christian life as a journey. Today, I have a, uh, a couple of encounters in one story, and it's going to be the end, the last 10 minutes. But in order for me to get to that encounter... Um, or those encounters in the Gospel of Luke, I want to give us a quick survey of the ministry of Jesus according to Luke. Because I've discovered some things in the last couple of months, just some theology that has shaped um, my view of the Scripture in a new way. And And whenever I experience that, it becomes this passion. So as I was preparing to talk about this encounter, I realized in order for us to get kind of the, the, the point, the punchline, if you will, we have to have this historical context um, as the backdrop. And so is that okay? So there's going to be some, some Bible study, historical context. Then we're going to get to uh, two different stories of encounters. And we'll have one point, And then I'll leave you with a question. Does that sound all right? It's pretty good. I think it's, that thing is good. All right, here we go. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. And all my Star Wars fans say, that's right. <clears throat> here we go. So... <clears throat> Luke chapter 4, only a couple more days, a couple more days for the solo premiere. Here we go. So Luke four fourteen. so Jesus is, this is the beginning of his ministry. So he's been baptized in the Jordan River. He goes to the wilderness for 40 days, and then it says, so the Spirit compelled him to go. He's led by the Spirit to go to the wilderness, and he comes back, and he begins his public ministry, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue, synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as his custom was, <clears throat> as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the part or the place where it is written, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This would have been electrifying in the first century. This would have caused all sorts of, uh, of controversy at the moment his ministry begins. This is Joseph's little boy, a carpenter's son. He just proclaimed to be the Messiah, the God incarnate, and the one who's bringing this anointed life. And he goes to his hometown and he says, good news, proclaiming liberty, setting people free, announcing the favorable year, liberating, letting go, forgiving, restoration, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Yeah, where's the cheer? Come on. Oh, this is insane. This is the inaugural sermon. 
This frames the rest of the gospel of Luke. And any time you read a quote in the Old Testament, as you read the Bible in the New Testament, don't just take the passage that is quoted. The writers of the New Testament intend for you to take the whole context of that passage. So in this particular case, Jesus uses Isaiah 61 as the framework or backdrop for his entire ministry. This is his State of the Union address. All right? And um, so let's go to Isaiah 61 and just check out what's going on there. So Isaiah is one of the Old Testament books. Um, it's, he's a prophet speaking to Israel about many things. And in Isaiah 61, we have the title of the passage is the year of the Lord's favor. I just want to give you this backdrop. So let's have the whole context. So Isaiah is confronting the people of God, Israelites, uh, reminding them of their vocation, identity, and purpose in the world to reflect God to the world. This is the purpose of the Old Testament. And they have, the people of God forgot. And so there's this vision Isaiah has for the people of God. And it goes like this, this spirit, verse one of 61 um, this sounds familiar. The spirit of the, the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let me just pause real quick. So um, I'm going to come back to it. We'll, we'll come back. Uh, good news to the poor. He has set, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release um, from the darkness for, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Just circle and remember righteous, righteousness. We'll come back to it at the end. A planting of the Lord for the display of, of his splendor. They, who, who are the they in this passage? The poor, who else? They will be called. Who are the they that are become righteous? The poor, look at the first section. Brokenhearted, the prisoners, the blunt, the marginalized people. They will be called righteous. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew, uh, will renew the renewed ruined cities and have, uh, that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in the, their riches you will boast. And it goes on. And this is Isaiah 61. And the scholars call this the vision of Jubilee. All right, so this is a vision of Jubilee. Jesus uses this vision and the understanding of Jubilee as a backdrop for the purpose of his ministry and mission. And this is what shocked me. As I've studied scriptures, as I've learned about uh, Jesus' ministry, I haven't put into, uh, into frame the vision of jubilee into the vision that Jesus has for the church. This is new to me, and I've been fascinated by it. So let's go, to, let's go look at what jubilee is all about, because it was instituted in the Old Testament as a law, a practice, a rhythm to the Hebrew life. So Leviticus chapter 25, Exodus talks about it, Deuteronomy talks about it, 
And Leviticus talks about it. So the, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And Leviticus is an amazing book. The theme is holiness. But what you have is this kind of rule and regulation, uh, law to practice uh, holiness and to be an example to the rest of the world set apart for uh, being on display to the nations that Yahweh is God. And you get to 25 verse 8. We're just going to jump in and read some of what's going on with the year of Jubilee. Count seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Any good people with numbers here? You guys go. So what they're saying is on the 49th year, you got to count it out. On the 49th year, this is what you're going to do. Then sound the trumpet everywhere, and on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year. And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your own family, property, and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the field. So the jubilee is this epic moment of rhythm, uh, redistribution, and social turnover in the, in the system, in the law of the Jewish people. Now, the, here's some Hebrew calendar rhythms real quick. Uh, the Sabbath, we know what the Sabbath is. It ended six days of work. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, well, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. In the Jewish calendar, Sabbath was a day of rest. Um, then there's the sabbatical year. After six years of work, the sabbatical year, the seventh year, ended with a day of rest. You would let the land rest. This is where we get the word sabbatical from. And then there was Jubilee, and it ended six sabbatical years of work. And this was an epic uh, proclamation for the people of God. Scholars don't know if the Jubilee fell in the 49th year or the 50th year. We don't know because historically we don't have any evidence that Jubilee was ever practiced by the people of God. But the Jubilee was a significant shakeup to the rhythm of Hebrew society and turned social life upside down, mainly for four categories. Now, I want you to just stay with me for a second. Trust me. So important to, because as you read the Gospel of Luke, it's going to shape how you see what Jesus is doing. And if you think this is a political agenda, there's no political agenda just for the people of God to be the people of God. That's it, okay? I want you to see, I want you to have a biblical lens, a biblical worldview when you make decisions in the world. As we engage as, as a redemptive presence in the world, we're not called to isolate ourselves and be hiding from the world. We're called to be right in the center of the world as a redemptive presence showing the alternative way, okay? And, this, and we could go to Leviticus and see how revolutionary this ancient document was and is today. You with me? Maybe. So, four categories, land. The land was given a vacation in the seventh year. Crops were not to be planted or harvested. The Lord promised plentiful yield in the sixth year to cover the rest of the seventh, okay? Some of us are like, okay, I don't get it, but that's fine, that's cool. Slaves were to be released. If you became a slave because of debt and worked as a hired servant, the Jubilee freed you from slavery. Some of us are like, okay, Debt, I can get that. Debts were erased. Since Israel could, uh, had an agricultural economy, debts were most, mostly charitable loans to needy people. 
And charging interest to your fellow Jew was illegal and prohibited. So the principle of the debt was also canceled in the Jubilee. Now let's just talk about this for a moment, okay? And we'll go back to what I want to talk about when I talked about the good news for the poor. How many of you have debt? Let's just raise your hands. Credit card debt, raise your hand. Medical, let's keep it up. Medical debt, student loan debt. Come on. Mortgage, any other debt? Keep your hands up, hands all the way up. If keep it up high, just look around, look at all the debt. If Je- now, now here's what's going on. Keep your hand up, check this out. Jesus comes onto the scene, first century Nazareth, and when he announces this, it would like it would be like him coming and saying, "All of your debt is canceled. You're now debt free." That's good news, right? We're like, finally, I get some good news because this is the problem. I've thought, why, why did he use this text to say, oh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. That's, the problem with that statement is that evangel- evangelicals have disassociated a social vision of Jesus's gospel message. To say good news is that you get to go somewhere when you die. You have a, ha- a mansion in heaven waiting for you. That's not good news for the poor. That's not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was using the Jubilee backdrop to say good news for the poor means you're no longer oppressed. You're no longer suffering. You're no longer under the power of a king who oppresses you with his wealth and his army. There's a new king in town, and that's the good news. Jubilee is happening. Debts are free, slaves go free. Those that are suffering under a predatory economic system are part of a new system. Do you, this is crazy revolution. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm the Messiah, I'm ushering in the Jubilee. The fourth element, and the most fascinating, in my opinion, was his conversion of ownership. So in this category, there's this weird thing that he says, um, on the 50th year, land that was given away will go back to the original families. Why, this is like, oh, especially in our capitalistic economy, this is just, yeah, right, I'm earning that. What do you mean? What he's doing, what, what, he, geez, what God was doing is he was preventing greedy landlords from buying up more land and oppressing the poor. So Jubilee was a legal policy instituted corporately to prevent systemic injustice in the community of God. So what, what's going on is to prevent systemic corruption, they, they prevented systems of power, people of power to accumulate wealth beyond their means in order to institutionalize a community that rep- would represent and reflect the character and nature of God. The law was to reflect the heart and character of God, but what they recognized is that greed would lead to excess of ownership, and that would oppress the poor. And if it oppressed the poor, then debt would incur, and the burden of debt would lead to a type of slavery as a result of debt. And when Jesus, what, what sorry, Leviticus does is they recognize that land and all of life is a gift from God, and it's called to be steward, stewarded. You're called to steward it generously on behalf of God. That's the vision of Jubilee in Leviticus. Are you with me? It's interesting, isn't it? Now put that, put that in your head as we look at these stories, okay? So the backdrop is Jesus uses Isaiah 61, the vision of Jubilee, 
as a, a vision for his mission. So in other words, Jesus links his messianic role and mission to the Jubilee. This is a Jubilee proclamation, a vision for life and community in the people of God. This becomes a metaphor for what it could be like. But at the time of Jesus, what you have are a ton of haves and have-nots. Check this out, or a few haves. Here's, here's what you need to see is that at the time of Jesus, and then we're gonna go to the encounters, just a couple more things that help make this context work. Would you go to that slide? So at the very top is the ruler. So you have Herod, Caesar, people ruler, and the ruling elite. That made up 3% of the population at the time of Jesus. Just under that is what they would call an upper middle class. They're the officials, the merchants, and the artisans. So 15% of the uh, population at the time of Jesus in Palestine would have been, um, would have been people that had enough. And the 85% were people that were living in poverty, living off of a day's work, a day's wage. So the peasants is 75%, and then they had unclean castoffs and beggars, about 10%. So that's the breakdown. Jubilee is the, is the reality that everyone has enough, okay? This is not what's going on at the time of Jesus. Now keep that in mind. So here we go, moving forward. Announces good news for the poor, release the captives. Scholars actually believe that when Jesus actually preached this, when he started his ministry, it was the actual year of Jubilee. Um, so you have this in your background. And then as you move forward in the Gospel of Luke, you see what happens. Jesus heals the blind. Jesus raises the dead. He gives, uh, uh, tax collectors are included. People are sharing their resources. You have um, stories of the paralytic being healed. You have the oppressed. Uh, the first thing he does is a demon-possessed man is set free liberated from oppression. So you see this vision becoming reality, but nothing becomes more clear until these two encounters. You guys good? That was all intro for this, okay? Go to Luke chapter 18, verse 18. I wanna look at these two stories, a rich young ruler versus a tax collector named Zacchaeus. When we place the vision of Jubilee behind these stories, we see something else going on, okay? And uh, hopefully this service will get there. First service got there. Um, by the grace of God, but hopefully I'll, I'll get there too. Let's just read these. I want you to see um, these two individual encounters. So they're familiar stories, but let's go. First one, Luke 18. <clears throat> A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is a very common question. It was not how, where do I, how do I get to heaven when I die? It's how do I experience the blessed life, the life that is really life. This is a Jewish way of asking that question. Is how do I live the life God intended me to live here and now? This is what you would ask a rabbi in the first century, and he calls him good teacher. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Check this out. All these I have kept since I was a boy. So he's a ruler. He calls Jesus a good teacher. He has been a spiritual man, and he's clearly moral because he's following the command since he was a little boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay, a couple of things about this. Number one, um, this man in first century context is the ideal man. Wealthy, ruler, following the Torah, blessed by all means by God, coming to Jesus as a teacher, trying to find out how do I make my life more blessed and align it with some spiritual guru's philosophy of eternal life. And Jesus lists out the commands and then recognizes that he leaves out, thou shall not covet. Do you notice that? Leaves out the very thing that has this guy's heart. Jesus in Mark 4 will say, look, guys, when the word of God comes and plants in different soils, some soil is like, be, will be choked out by thorns. What kind of soil? Because of the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He, he literally will say in Matthew chapter 6, the greatest threat to your discipleship is money. You cannot serve God and money. Because money gives you everything that God gives you. As a, as, a, as a false act, as imitation. Security, identity, purpose, meaning, significance, power, success. You can save it. You can store it. You can work hard for it. You can make interest off of it. Do you see? And Jesus says, this, this is the thing for this guy, for the rich young ruler, this is the thing that is hindering his life from experiencing all that God has for him. So he calls it out. He sees it. Hey, your issue, your journey, the journey, you remember last week, the journey this man was on needed a de decisive moment and response. Either Jesus is more than a good teacher, he's Lord, or not. Sell everything you have because that's hindering you from experiencing the life that is really life. And what does he do? He walks away. Because Jesus required a response that made him Lord more than a good teacher. You guys good? So that's one story. So the guy that should have got Jesus, right? The wealthy dude with lots of stuff who's blessed by God, who's, you know, the guy on top of, in charge of all the boards for all the little nonprofits. <laughs> that's the guy who should get Jesus, but he's blind. And then let's read the next story. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Jesus approached Jericho and a blind man was sitting on the road. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what's going on. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him. Shut up, keep quiet. And that made him yell all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Lord, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And all the people saw they praised God. So the blind beggar, the guy cursed by God, who can't physically see, gets, who shouldn't get Jesus, gets Jesus, and not only physically sees, but figuratively sees and follows Jesus with his life. You with me? 
All of this is to prepare you for the most controversial story in the Gospel of Luke. The most offensive story we can read together in first century context. And it's the story of Zacchaeus. All of this is preparing you. Year of Jubilee. Blind receiving sight. Wealthy guy not willing to share what he has to experience the real eternal life. Then we get to, we get to Jericho and Zacchaeus. And let's read this together. Jesus entered Jericho. Uh, and was passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Do you see the humor of this? This is really funny. When you put, when you, like they, they, clearly Luke had some divine help. And so he ran. <laughs> it's a really. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm 6'2. I, I get it. 5'1. Okay. But look at this. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. That's a really important detail. We'll come back to that. Since Jesus was coming that way. Okay, let's just pause right here. So. Jericho, not a small farming village, okay? We're talking a city in the first century with pools and parks and typical Roman, Greco-Roman buildings. The surrounding area was irrigated. It was extremely fertile. It was made for the wealthy. It was a wealthy vacation home spot. Newport Beach to Southern California, Laguna Beach. This is what we're talking about, Malibu. Okay, Herod the Great had made it the winter capital. The rabbis in the first century called it the fat lands of Jericho. Jericho was the gateway for trade route that ran between Jerusalem and the rest of the Gentile world east of the Jordan. Jericho is an important city. It's where all the ruling elite stayed out when they were not doing business in Jerusalem. Multiple homes, mansions. We're talking wealth, okay? Newport Beach, Malibu, are you with me? Laguna Beach. Zacchaeus, he was rich because he was the chief tax collector in his district. He had a team of subordinates working below him. So it wasn't him collecting the taxes. He hired them out to collect. He had a lucrative job in a lucrative area. He was the president of the bank on Wall Street. He was the head of the real estate company in Newport Beach. Zacchaeus at one point outbid his contenders to win the right to collect taxes. The tax collectors often used force and fraud to make um, a financial killing. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus sometimes even embezzled money from their own employees. At the time of Jesus, some estimate 80 to 90% of your income was taxed by the Romans and by the, by the temple. So tax collectors, understandably, were hated, especially the bosses. This was not only um, because they were Jews collecting for the Romans, but because they cheated and used force to collect the money. And tax bosses were stigmatized. You're, you weren't allowed to be a judge. You were denied civil and political rights. You couldn't be a witness in the court. You were treated worse than Gentile slaves. You were an outcast. You weren't allowed to go to the temple. Anyone that dined with you would be considered a sinner, um, tax collectors weren't even allowed to use their money for almsgiving to the poor because there was, it was considered tainted. People hated tax collectors. Zacchaeus' name would have been mocked. His name means the righteous one. Are you with me? So much symbolism in this text. 
So much symbolism in the sick. I, 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 the fig tree. Can we just pause on the fig tree for a moment? Is that up there? Do we have a fig tree slide? Fig tree. No, we don't. Okay, so fig tree. The fig tree. Why, why would it be so specific? You ever wonder why we sing this song, you know? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He. Sycamore fig tree. Here's the deal. I'm going to give you, you're going to be like, thank you, Darren. That's all I needed this week. <clears throat> the symbol for the Jewish religion in the first century was the temple. Okay? It's the epicenter of God's presence. It represented God's presence and the people of God, the covenant God had with the Israelites. If there was a flag that represented the temple and the Jewish religion, for the first century Jew, the flag was a fig tree. The fig tree was the symbol of the very thing Zacchaeus was excommunicated from. And here he is climbing up the fig tree and Jesus pulls down the fruit of the outcast. Isn't that interesting? That just, that doesn't, I could just do that. And let's see you later. So that's what's going on. There's, there's, this, there's this play on the temple and the purpose of the temple. It's like when Jesus goes in Jer Jerusalem and curses the tree, remember? You ever read that? It's like he's burning the temple flag. Revolution is on its way. Okay, Luke, let's, we're gonna finish in just a second. Luke 19, I wanna read this story because it's so beautiful. It's become one of my favorite stories for how offensive it is. When Jesus reached the spot, <clears throat> he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you wee little man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. <gasps> so he came down and once, at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's in on the embezzlement. He's a traitor to the people of God. It would be as controversial as Jesus today going to a party at the Playboy Mansion, partying it up with Hugh Hefner, even though he's dead, and, <laughs> and then coming out. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What does this say about this man and his morality? It's the, it would be like Jesus going to a cartel that traffics women and hanging out with the boss at his mansion's house. That offensive. You're tank, you're contaminated. No Jew would hang out with Zacchaeus. It is that offensive. Zacchaeus is immoral. He has no spiritual bone in his body. He's, he's crushed the poor. He's caused all this injustice. This mansion that you're dining at is built on the operation of thugs and, and oppressing slaves. And Jesus says, what's for dinner? What does this say? What, what is, Jesus demonstrates the incredible reckless love of God. Does it not? Like, this is the model for how, oh, somebody was asking me, they're like, I just hate that the church has these things that for people groups that I love and I can't be a part of a church that doesn't embrace these people. And I'm like, well, how do we do it? This is the way. Because love has no regard for reputation or status. Love shows, Garden Church, we should be at every hospital, every home with people that are suffering. And we should be at every party in the city. That's the way of Jesus. 
Oh, what will they think of me at that party? I don't care. Because they thought he was a drunkard, a glutton, a sinner. A, a, yeah, isn't it crazy? He's hanging out with guys like Zacchaeus, and then the religious people are still coming to him. That's the compassionate way of Jesus. This is what we have to embody. Well, I just want to know so I can be secure about the position your church takes. We take the position of Zacchaeus. Thank you very much. Just this Bible right here, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The church looks like a comfortable, cozy place for members only. And that's, that's the indictment on us. Because as soon as we get five, five weeks of sobriety, we think it's, it's been done on our own strength and we know we're standing sober by the grace of God. That we're just beggars that found some little nibbles of bread and we're just wanting to share what little crumbs we have for the rest of the world. Some of us just want to hold it and become connoisseurs. Like this whole thing is designed to be a connoisseur. This is a well of life. Jesus is water for the thirsty, not wine for connoisseurs. Jesus used meals as a way to build relationship. Period. It wasn't for the outcome, which we'll get to. It was for the relationship. And this is what we always have an agenda. There's no agenda except love, period. That's the agenda. Why aren't we sharing our faith with strangers when we could go five minutes and someone accept a life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe, restored in their identity, now introduced to the heavenly resources at their fingertips here and now, invited into a community that they're longing for? Someone in the first service said they found a guy who was walking in downtown Long Beach wondering what the purpose of life was and became a Christian because someone showed him a picture of Jesus knocking on the door of his heart. It's low-hanging fruit. But you know what? I don't want to offend anyone. I don't know what they're going to think about me at the workplace. I'll be labeled. Come on, brothers and sisters. This isn't about convincing people. This is about setting fire. This isn't about trying to argue someone's perspective. This is about living such a vibrant life of love that they're like, I want what you have. What are you on? The Holy Spirit? I want some of that intoxicating Holy Spirit time, you know what I'm saying, in the library. I know what that's like. I can say I know what that's like. Some of you have never been, what just happened? I get it. It's totally fine. I've been in scenarios where I, I literally, I'm like, baby, I just got to sit down for the next three hours. I cannot drive right now because God is wrecking my life, unraveling me with his love. I've prayed for people in the last few weeks and we didn't have more stories where the mysteries of their heart were shown. Someone comes up for physical healing and the word of knowledge is the greatest pain and issue in this person's life and she breaks down, hysterical. That's the power of, of God for the community. And let me just say, you don't have to go to a special conference to learn how to do the dance. In fact, I would argue against that, fully honest, because that's the way of Jesus is simple it's powerful, and it's open to, to everyone, that all of Jesus' ministry, all of Jesus' ministry, sight for the blind, healing for the paralyzed, deliverance of evil spirits, prophecy, words of knowledge, gifts of giving, the whole thing is for all of the church. You don't just get one, you get the Spirit, who is the gift giver. 
We're off subject, but let's just keep going. This is good. I'm, you don't get to come and get a special anointing from some special anointed person. There's one anointing. It's the Holy Spirit. Now we receive it in different grace in seasons of life and impartations, and I believe in impartations and all that stuff, but I believe the power of God can be released by any person with or without faith. That's the truth. I've prayed for people that I've had no faith for that got miraculously healed. I pray for people that I've had tons of faith for, for that didn't get healed. And we have to be in that tension. And it's okay. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with Jesus. Are we preaching? Jesus uses the table as a symbol of forgiveness, inclusion, and reconciliation. And I believe that's what we need to do today. That to model Jesus, we need to eat with people close to God and far from God as a way of practicing the way of Jesus, which we'll talk about. We'll get to this subject in the future. One of the ways we practice the way of Jesus is by eating with people intentionally. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or leaving something like all meals. It's like he's about to go to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. That's basically the the Gospel of Luke in a nutshell. It's absolutely beautiful because the dinner table, the table represents forgiveness, inclusion, and reconciliation to God. So this is what happens. Jesus at this cartel human trafficker's house is just eating a meal. We have no, no record of what's done. You gotta believe in these spiritual truths. You gotta, you gotta say this prayer. And that's okay. I totally believe in theology, doctrine. Obviously, I'm a student of it. I believe in saying prayers. It's not what happens. He has this radical encounter with God, with Jesus in a, at his house. And he says this. Verse eight. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I want to see what Jesus is about. He's at this meal. Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Okay. Anytime someone tries to say that the law is to sell all of your possessions, you can just counter them with the very next story. This guy doesn't give all of his possessions away. He gives half of his, what's, is it full, all of it? Is it half? And then four times I cheated. He's literally standing on the lawn calling all the peasants. Hey, come here, come here. Half of my stuff, it's going. Let's go. Get into this house. Take half of my stuff. If I cheated you, I'm going to pay you back four times. And the only time in Scripture we know that salvation really occurred is right here. Jesus said to him, because you said this prayer and confessed, no. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. This fruit of the temple is being plucked because it's ripe for the Messiah. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, what I love about Zacchaeus is how, I mean, this would have been the revolution. It's happening. The most corrupt people are sharing their resources. This is jubilee response. Jesus was looking for a jubilee response with the rich young ruler. But the moment he tied salvation to personal wealth, I'm out. Good teacher. He's a good teacher. I like his podcasts. 
I like the books. Not the one about the cross, but I like the, the, the more, you know, give me more in this lifetime type of stuff. Bless me, God. That's the good teacher. Zacchaeus has no spiritual bone in his body. He has not followed the Ten Commandments since he was a little boy. He's corrupt. He's immoral. He doesn't really know who Jesus is, but he knows enough to call him Lord, and his response is jubilee. And Jesus says, salvation has come to the house of the righteous. Isn't this amazing? The revolution. It's jubilee. It's happening. We're, we're taking care of each other. We're going to make sure you walk in May. We're going to make sure you have enough rent. We're going to make sure that you get help in the court system. We're going to make sure that you have enough to eat and there's shoes. We're going to make sure that those in our city that, that are going to get showers on Saturday have, have more laundry, uh, people helping them with their laundry, more food, and they have clothes to pick out and shoes to pick out. And St. Luke said, thank you so much for all of your donations last week. We need more shoes. So next week, shoes. Let's go. Bring the shoes. This is what, this is the revolution. Jesus ties personal salvation to social ethics. A miracle has happened. A rich dude walks through the eye of the needle. No competition in my life, Jesus. You're Lord. Oh, we can, oh, I'm not the rich one. We're all rich. We're in the United States. We drove here or have a friend that drove us here. Most of us have running water that we don't have to walk four miles to. How many of you have access to clean water that is not more than four miles away? Would you just raise your hand so we can make a point? Thank you very much. One hand, bad, good theology, no jubilee, condemnation. Other hand, bad theology or no theology at all, jubilee and true salvation. Both stories, private spiritual experience connects to social justice. No, no, no. Private per spiritual experience connects to economic justice. See, this is the point. True discipleship is re reconstructs life and resources and community around the way of Jesus. And here's my only point today. When you confess Jesus is Lord, everything else in your life must submit to his lordship. You can call him good teacher all day long and not let it affect your life. But when you confess that Jesus is Lord, everything else in your life, everything else, your emotions, your thinking, your sexuality, your body, your communal life, your family life, the way you drive to work, the way you are at work, the way you drive home from work, the way you handle your finances, the way you handle your education, the neighborhood you're in, the way you are, the personhood is to be reconstructed around Jesus' lordship and that, that gets rebuilt around the way of Christ. And here's the question I'm going to leave you with, and then we'll pray. And if you need prayer for healing, please come forward. We want to keep praying for healing. If you need prayer for emotional healing, we've seen emotional breakthrough, let's pray for you. If you need prayer because you're wondering about jobs and want guidance and praying that maybe someone might have a word of knowledge, we'd love to pray for you. Or if you want to do this next thing and just confess this to someone, let me know. But here's the question I have. If Jesus showed up to your house today, he just said, hey, I'm going to show up to your house. Let's have a meal. What would be a fitting response for him to tell you salvation has come to this home? What would be the thing that you'd have to set aside in your life to let Jesus be Lord? 
Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.